0: Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, October 9th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from All Walks of Life. I'm Katrina Liebrick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in
1: Alaska. (laughs) And ha ha ha! bonjour, je m'appelle Guy And this week we're talking about a fish that shouldn't have a little man complex and also probably shouldn't be invading Russia in the wintertime anytime soon. It's the humphead wrasse. Oh my gosh, that is silly. I caught
0: you a delicious (laughs) ras. That's from Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, Anyways, we digress, but I'm very pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Amanda Pollack with our Pacific Islands Refuges and Monuments office, and also our National Wildlife Refuge Systems Inventory and Monitoring Program. So we're super excited to learn about this very charismatic fish and the amazing waters around the Pacific remote islands. So welcome. Thank you.
1: They're also called Napoleon wrasse. And Katrina and I were going back and forth before the show started trying to figure out why that's the case. Do you know? So the jury's a little bit out on that one.
2: Some people say it's because of the bump on Napoleon's hat. Mm. It it kind of protruded in the front. And some people say that Mr. Napoleon in the Indo-Pacific region really liked these fish and was very good at catching them. So it might be from Napoleon Bonaparte and it might be from some guy named Mr. Napoleon.
1: Interesting. This
0: fish is a sight to see. Kind of reminds me of the Texas cichlid that we talked about, but much bigger and more colorful. So say you're diving, one of these fish comes into view and approaches you. What are your first impressions? What does it look like? It
2: blows your mind. You see this fish hanging off in the murk. They're very wary, but they're curious at the same time. So they'll come out of the gloom And all of a sudden, it's like a door swimming through the water. They're massive. Mm -hmm. They can get up to seven feet and weigh about 400, 420 pounds at their largest. And then they get a little closer and you're just blown away by the vivid colors. The males can be electric blue and teal with purple squiggles on their face. And the females are a bit smaller. Juveniles are smaller, but they're yellow and red with white bellies. They're a bit wary at first, but sometimes they warm up to you and come a bit closer and you can really see all the cool squiggles all over their face. They've also been known as Maori wrasse and that's mm-hmm. because of the facial tattoos that Maoris have. And oh,
1: okay.
2: it looks like the rats have facial tattoos.
0: Yeah. What is the hump made out of on their head? It's this
2: fleshy, bulbous protrusion. The little ones have it a little bit and as they grow and mature... It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it's just this massy fleshy thing it's not used for anything except hey i'm super sexy uh so <laughs> the males that have them they'll have this bulbous protrusion and it gets bigger and brighter and it looks really good to females so it's a sign that they are very virile and productive males
1: so could that hump also serve as a signal to other males who might be interested in challenging for territory or something so that they can size one another up before engaging in a potentially harmful conflict?
2: Yeah. It's not like the bumphead parrotfish who use their heads to smash into each other like rams, but it definitely could be a sizing up type of thing. The hump, the lips, and the colors. Definitely. Yeah. It's a cue to females, but it's also a cue to other males.
1: You mentioned the sexual dimorphism, but there's more to it than that. They have this interesting life history among some of them.
2: Yes. So these guys are protogenous hermaphrodites, meaning they change sex throughout their life. There's been study on this, but as, as widespread as these fish are and as cool as they are and as dramatic as they are, there's not a ton known about them. So they are sex changers. And it's thought that they start off as a kind of indeterminate sex, and then they mature to a female at about five years of age Hmm. and maybe 50 centimeters, and they live as females for a while. And at about nine years of age, close to a meter in size, if environmental conditions are good and appropriate... If the sex ratio in the population is good and there's not a big honking male around suppressing all the females, then they will change from a female to a male. And then Mm -hmm. the bump on their head will grow. Their colors will change to the teal, electric blue, purpley, and they get very vibrant and much Mm -hmm. more interesting to the females that are around them. There is some scant data that some might be male first, and then they just stay male and grow. But most of them are sex changing.
0: How long do these guys live? About 30 years. Okay. How long is a transition?
2: That's a bit of an unknown. We know that it happens around nine years of age or at a specific body size with the right conditions. Like if a big male disappears, generally the largest female will turn into a male. A few have been caught, and they've looked at the gonads, and they look like they're in transition, but we don't exactly know how long that would take. Okay, A matter of weeks, matter of a month or so.
0: Do the males have a harem? I always
2: thought that they were haremic fish. And then I did a little literature search and said, oh, no, they're not. You know, they're solitary. And then they go, and they have a spawning aggregation of 10 to 100. I've never okay. seen that. <laughs> but in the areas that I've seen them, you'd have one male with several females, four to six. When that usually happens, you'll have a male with a big home range size and you'll have a bunch of females within those. But I was lucky enough to be involved in a tracking study for these guys. And the females had a bigger home range size than the males. Okay. So that was Mm. kind of turned it on its head for us, but it was really, really neat to figure
0: out. What kind of home range size are we talking about for a fish like this? This Is this a fish correct
2: yes so coral reef fish highly highly associated with live coral and these are powerful powerful fish i was trying to catch one of these guys when we were doing our acoustic tagging study and he went into a big huge bommie and i was like okay i'm going to go in after it and i'm going to slip the rope around its tail and then we can extract it and we've got it and i'm in there with this ras And this thing is just huge. It didn't care about me at all. And I was getting a rope around its tail and it would slip off. It just kind of move it, its body a little bit and shrug the rope off. And finally I got it. It's like, okay, here we go. I got it. And I start kind of trying to, to work (laughs) it gently backwards. This guy played me so well. It get a little wiggle of its tail. The rope fell off. And the next thing I knew I was surrounded by, coral dust it had Mm -hmm. completely blown apart the balmy we were in created a new door and was gone and everybody else that was watching around they just said it went from beautiful visibility to they couldn't see a thing and they looked down and the whole entire coral balmy was blasted open we nicknamed this guy big eddie and we saw him later he didn't have a scratch on him what's a balmy it's a, a collection of corals. <laughs> it can be one really big old coral. It's basically like a patch reef. It's a big house, okay. a big group of corals together.
1: And it just tore that down.
2: Oh, yeah. Just completely remodeled it, put it in a front door. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice.
1: The, the sequential hermaphroditism is rare, maybe not so much among fishes, but certainly among the animal kingdom. What is the evolutionary pressure for such a life history? Why is that an advantage to these fish?
2: Sperm is cheap and eggs are expensive. So if you are a long lived, slow maturing fish and you're slow to reproduce like humphead wrasse are, then you want to be very careful in how you invest your energy. When you're small, you can put that effort into being a female and have plenty of eggs, But as you grow, you would want to change to a male because sperm is cheap and you can put all your effort into growing large, growing your big bump, making your Mm -hmm. lips look very impressive. Their lips also increase in size and get much more fleshy and put energy into your vibrant colors rather than all of their effort into creating eggs, which are very, very much energy intensive.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Is there anything related possibly to competition and the success of I me? Mean, like you got these big males, and if you're a small, maturing male, you're probably going to get fought off and maybe not get a chance to reproduce. whereas if you're a female, you're yes. at a premium. Eggs yeah. are going to get fertilized. I mean, maybe they won't make it, but they're at least going to get fertilized, no matter what. Is that part exactly.
2: No, oh, totally. You're right on. And what happens is these guys, they don't form the massive spawning aggregations that you've heard of with the goliath groupers and some parrotfish if if, if you're staying small and there are several females to one really large male it's much more efficient and so they'll pair up and they'll broadcast spawn in the water column if you're a male and you're big male you know that you are fertilizing that female and you're not having other males to compete with and yes they will chase off smaller males they're they're very territorial about their females.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Thank, thanks for letting me indulge that. One no, question. it's great. I love
2: it.
0: <laughs> I'm just kind of curious about where they're living and if you can tell us a little bit more about the Pacific remote islands, where we are on the map and what refuges and monuments are actually here.
2: One of the most amazing things about my job and about working in the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, which has the seven refuges within it, is that these places are so remote and they're so special, and they belong to the American people. You can't get there easily. For many people, it's enough to know these places exist. So one of the challenges of refuge management and Marine National Monument Management is to get the refuge and the monument to the people because you can't bring the people to the refuge. And we do this with our ambassadors and people that do get to go there. Like I, I've been fortunate enough to take volunteers down to Palmyra and then they fall in love with it and they go back out and they tell the story of Palmyra. They tell their aunt that lives in rural Montana about the colors of the coral reefs And about this amazing green fish that she saw swimming through the water that was almost as big as she was. And that these places are so critically important and that they need to survive and they need to thrive. It's an important baseline to have.
0: We recently featured a fish from the Marianas Trench Marine National Monument. And yeah, again, never going to go down there, but it was so incredible to just learn about that environment and just hear from folks who've been there or who live in that area. It really like captures your imagination. Yeah, magical places.
2: It's within our power to keep them thriving. Humphead wrasse are found throughout the Indo-Pacific and it's a lot easier to say where they're not found than where they are found. They're definitely found within the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. Every one of them, except for Johnston Atoll, so there are seven units in this Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. And it's a Palmyra Atoll, Kingman Reef, Howland, Baker, and Jarvis, Johnston, and Wake. And these are all national wildlife refuges.
0: And they're tiny islands, correct? With many miles of ocean around. Even
2: atolls, not even like real islands, tiny little spires in the middle of an ocean and they're these specks that come up from the deep ocean and they are surrounded by coral reefs, which is extremely important for the humphead wrasse. They are highly associated with coral reefs and high coral cover. The smaller ones, and the juveniles, will recruit to areas um, of acropora thickets, branching coral, staghorn coral. So they have a lot of protection and a lot of cover as they grow. And then the adults are also highly associated to high coral cover, but they tend to move out into deeper environments on the reef slope.
0: Okay. And what are they eating there?
2: They're eating invertebrates. And okay. these guys are so cool because they're kind of the cleanup team of the reef as well. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to eat toxic things. So boxfish, pufferfish, oh. and also crown of thorns starfish. So yeah, which is great because if you have too many crown of thorns starfish, your coral reef is in trouble. So they can help to keep those Mm. uh, coral predators at good levels. And they've got this really cool tooth structure where their teeth are fused into more of a beak, kind of like a parrotfish. And they can pluck things out of the reef very delicately. It's so neat to see this huge, huge fish. Mm-hmm. delicately come down to a coral reef and pluck something off of it without disturbing anything else. And then ah, ah, just loudly <laughs> crunching, breaking apart the shell, and then you know, swallowing the mollusk that's inside, the snail. And they have pharyngeal teeth, which are a second set of teeth further back in the mouth, in the throat. And it grinds up the mollusk. And it also makes sure that nothing comes back out. It's one way.
1: Wow. Yeah. Rasses, this is, you know, a super diverse family of fish. This is the first one we've actually ever covered, which is really big for the rasses. But their mouth structure and the diversity of mouth structure within rasses is amazing. I, have you ever seen that video like the she sling went- jaw rats? Yeah,
2: Yes, sling jaw wrasse are amazing. They just completely jut out their jaw and it's almost, it's like a third of their body length. Again, when yeah. the jaw comes out, a lot of rasses are suction feeders. They've got amazing ways of feeding. And yeah, this is the biggest of the wrasse family. Some mm-hmm. folks call the, the humphead the king of the reef. They're in the family Labridae, an amazingly diverse family. One thing you can say about all Labrids is that they swim with their pectoral th- fins. But okay. so many other things about them is different.
0: Yeah, I was going to oh. ask kind of what marries the that group together. What are some common characteristics for the rasses? But that's, yeah, interesting.
1: And they are kind of in that group. You know, Katrina at the beginning mentioned, you know, the cichlids. They're kind of in there. It's like the rasses, cichlids, damselfishes, and parrotfishes are all kind of in this own yeah. little section, right? Like on land, I've been to plenty of national wildlife refuges. And, you know, they're well marked with fence posts. There's like a manager on site there to oversee things. I got to imagine with these remote islands, how do you have someone kind of keeping an eye on things? How do you demarcate them? What is and outside of the refuge and just how do you manage and enforce that it's a refuge?
2: It's difficult, especially for the extremely remote
0: ones like Helen, Baker and Jarvis. Yeah. And Jarvis is like 2.5 degrees from the equator.
2: We don't get there very often. We get there maybe every three years in conjunction with uh, NOAA crews. Mm -hmm. And then Fish and Wildlife is in charge of going and kind of inventory and monitoring the terrestrial environment. And NOAA inventories and monitors the marine environment. That's for Howland, Baker, and Jarvis, and sometimes Johnston. Palmyra, we're extremely lucky in that we have this great relationship with the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy owns the main island of Palmyra, Cooper Island, and they run a research station. There's 25 little islets, and the rest of the atoll is National Wildlife Refuge that extends out to 12 nautical miles. And then the Marine National Monument waters extend out to 50 nautical miles. So you've got about 580 acres of land in the refuge.
0: And I've heard 16,000 acres of coral reefs as well, and 555,000 or so acres of pelagic waters. Wow. Wow.
2: Yeah. So we've got a presence on Palmyra year round because Nature Conservancy runs the research station. And it's a little bit easier to enforce there, but it's still incredibly hard because, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Didn't you see the fence post at 12 mm-hmm. nautical miles out from the refuge? You know, there's mm-hmm. there's no fences there. We don't even have a refuge sign there. Um, it's very, very hard to get to. And if you want to visit it, you basically visit it by um, chartering a sailboat or you own a sailboat or a vessel that can get there.
0: Okay. What's a typical day like for you when you go out with your inventory and monitoring job?
2: Well, it really depends on where I am. But at Palmyra, I have several projects down there. One of the ones that I'm working on now is we are looking at the recovery of the lagoons. Palmyra was highly altered during World War II. It was a naval base. And they took all of the little islets, 52 little islets at the time, and they uh, ringed them. They dredged and filled and put them all together and mm-hmm. completely destroyed the flow in and out of the lagoons. They made a causeway that just blocked all circulation. So unfortunately, the lagoons suffocated and died. Mm-hmm. And all of the corals and the giant clams in there, just very, very few survived. But Mother Nature is incredible. And if you leave it alone, she starts to erode things that were not supposed to be there. And now you're having breaks in the islands and Mm -hmm. you've got so much erosion, so much flow, you're seeing corals recruit into the lagoons and lagoons are recovering. So when I go down to Palmyra, I wake up in the morning, eat my breakfast, fall Mm -hmm. into a boat and I go out and I'm Going and taking pictures and IDing corals and my buddies are flying drones over my head and okay. they are using drones to take pictures of all the lagoons and all of the near shore back reefs of Palmyra. And we are using AI to identify corals. And then I'm there taking in-situ information, taking high-precision GPS pictures. I've got this little kickboard with a crazy GPS that comes out of it, cameras attached underneath. And I'm photographing individual corals and documenting their genus species, if I can. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. also taking pictures of stuff that's not corals. So they can understand, all right, this is a dead clam shell and this is an algae and this is crustous coralline algae. This is not coral. This is coral. And this is what genus this coral is. So we're weaving it all together to get a really cool time series and map of yeah. coral recovery in the lagoons.
0: I imagine there's a lot of species to be familiar with.
2: 418 species of fish at Palmyra and 176 okay. species of coral and counting. Wow. Yeah. it's a lot. lot. Yeah.
1: Palmyra's has always been on my bucket list as a place to try <laughs> to find some reason to get out to. And you're just making me jealous.
2: It's amazing.
1: <laughs> so in, in these areas, you know, a lot of like just historic fishing culture, people who relied on these reefs everywhere along the South Pacific, kind of in that whole rim, what Kind of place did the humphead wrasse, being such a big fish, hold in those kinds of cultures? Did people fish for it? Did they revere it? A little of both? Actually, a lot of both.
2: One big humphead could probably feed a village for quite a while. And these were one of the major sources of proteins for villages. And they were also very culturally significant. And depending on where you were through the South Pacific, it might be a rite of passage for a young man to go out and get his first humphead wrasse to bring back to help feed the village. They were also seen as guardians and good luck to have on a reef. So they would fish for them, but they weren't frivolous with them. They would create woven baskets out of betel nut in the Solomon Islands. And they'd use hand lines in other areas. So they're very diverse in how they'd fish for them. They're very hard fish to catch. I can attest to that. They're almost bulletproof. I mean, their scales are huge, massive scales, like the size of your hand easily and highly overlapping. And if you look close up, they kind of make a diamond shape because they're so overlapping. You can go up to them with a spear gun and try to spear them point blank and it will bounce off because oh, wow. of their armor. Wow. So you have to be Wait. an extremely accomplished spear fisherman to be able to catch it on a spear. And you can use hand lines and nets and traps. The smaller ones are much easier to capture, but the big ones what? are difficult.
0: What would be on the end of a hand line? Probably squid or octopus
2: okay. or okay. some juicy mollusk. Okay. Very, very neat.
1: Currently, they're IUCN listed as... either Are they threatened or endangered? I, I forget Endangered. Yeah, in-
2: they got upgraded.
1: So I take it that probably these traditional fishing methods were replaced by maybe something a bit more destructive. Is that the case?
2: Yes, they were definitely replaced. And they are in decline throughout their range. They're naturally a very rare fish. You don't see them commonly on a coral reef. They don't form big schools like many parrotfish do. And they're just naturally rare. And then you have the fact that they're slow growing, late maturing, slow to reproduce. They're going to be rare in a natural population anyway. Unfortunately, now their biggest threat is the live fish trade. Evidently, these guys taste very good and they can go for I think it was like $600 a kilo in Singapore and China.
1: Okay. So what's happening- And how many kilos is a single adult fish? You, You said like 400 pounds, so that's like 200 kilos? Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of money.
2: It can really mess up a population because a lot of folks are targeting the big ones because you can feed an entire village. But in the live fish trade, they're targeting plate size ones. And that is the juveniles or small females. So you really mess up the sex ratio of a population. You're not letting those small fish mature to the point where they can reproduce and add back into the population. There's a lot of illegal fishing for this and they are IUCN listed. And they're also on CITES. When they're catching these fish, they're using dynamite and cyanide. Mm -hmm. And so they're destroying the coral reef that the fish depend on. And let alone ever, all the other fish. And it's very, very destructive. Unfortunately, because of the demand, it's having a massive effect.
0: So, what are some of the management tools? I know we've mentioned marine protected areas and you've talked about the range and trying to track and understand how big that is. Is that like the primary tool? Education, definitely trying to
2: limit the destructive fishing. Hopefully, there can be other trade restrictions. It's just hard to say where the fish came from, especially if it's caught live. Sometimes they catch them live and then they grow them to a certain size and then ship them out. That was one of the CITES things that if they were caught wild, they get a W. And if they were in an aquaculture facility, mariculture facility, they get an M. But what if you catch it in the wild, you grow it for and two years. Yeah. So then you have yeah. an M. So they're kind of getting around that trade restriction by saying, oh, no, it's a mariculture. But you cannot rear these fish from egg to adult or even juvenile in a mariculture condition. That They haven't been able to do that yet. Okay. So, yeah, trade restrictions, education, trying to change the way people are fishing mm-hmm. and also protect their environments and create marine protected areas that are the right size. The study that I was involved in, we did it at Palmyra and there'd only been one tracking study before on an individual that left the area after a short period. And we were able to track fish up to 394 days. We saw ontogenetic shifts for home range size, meaning they change as the fish matures, it changes the fish grows. So juveniles have the smallest home ranges. Females had the largest home ranges and mm. then the male home range would shrink probably because, you know, once they have their females, they don't need to go as far go
0: anywhere. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's yeah. like, Hey, I'm so awesome. Look at how big I am. <laughs> so juveniles, we looked at home range size, but also wanted to measure the longest length of the home range because mm. we were also doing this to try to figure out how large of a marine protected area we needed to create to protect the juveniles were around 0.7 kilometers in length. Females were big. It was 7 to 14 kilometers in length. And the males were small again, 2 to 4.3 kilometers in length. And Palmyra is out in the middle of nowhere. We don't have any fishing pressure. We don't have all the other anthropogenic stresses that many of these fish face in other regions. So we could have a really good idea of what their habitat use looks like and then take that to the international community and say, all right, most of mean. your marine protected areas are too small for <laughs> one female. So if you want to protect the population, your marine protected area needs to be much bigger. And these guys also can be seen as an umbrella species. So if you want to protect a marine ecosystem, you can say, hey, we want to design a marine protected area to protect the humphead wrasse. Home range is going to be way bigger than all of your other species in there. They're highly susceptible to fishing pressure. So you knock the fishing out and they're also, you know, the slow growth and slow reproduction. So they've got the things for an umbrella species. So you protect them, you're basically protecting your coral reefs. That's
0: great. You mentioned the scales are really tough. Is there an area that's vulnerable to like actually applying a tag or doing a surgery to insert the tag? So, When we did surgery, we would remove a scale in the abdomen, You do
2: an incision, and surgically implant the transmitter into the abdominal cavity. And then you suture it back up, revive the fish, and release it.
0: That's a very common technique. It is. Just for folks listening, we've used it on, you know, Dolly Varden up here, salmon. It's very common in the fisheries world to do this.
2: Yeah, it's very common. And then you have an acoustic transmitter that's implanted into the fish. And depending on the size of the transmitter and the battery life, you can have it transmitting for a very short time, maybe a matter of weeks to years. And at Palmyra, we had this amazing array of 60 uh, receivers around the atoll and in the lagoons. So we could get a really good
0: understanding of how these fish were using their environment. It's very good information. Very important.
1: Yes. There's different kinds of marine protected areas out there. We kind of hear this term thrown around generally, but you have you know, no entry, non-extractive, non-commercial in terms of fishing, no use whatsoever. So when you say marine protected areas in terms of what you guys have in these refuges, what kind are those? And then what kind do you see around the Pacific?
2: We're very, very lucky in the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. Most of it's completely closed.
1: Close to entry to anyone from the outside
2: some close to entry, others open to entry, and then no extraction whatsoever.
1: Okay, You're protecting
2: all of your resources. And in these remote areas, the really cool thing about them is the terrestrial environment and the marine environment are completely linked. So you have your tuna feeding offshore, and they're pushing the bait fish up from underneath, and you have your seabirds feeding in concert with the tuna, and they're sandwiching the bait fish. So they're all feeding together, the seabirds are getting a ton of food. They're bringing it back to the island or the atoll and they're roosting in the vegetation and they're doing what seabirds do. They poop. So they bring all that pelagic energy back to the island and then it rains on the island and the poop is washed into the lagoon or the nearshore environment where manta rays might be waiting and copepods and Phytoplankton and all that blooms because of the nutrients that are getting washed into the waters. So the manta rays feed on that, and then your tide washes in, your tide washes out, takes all that nutrients out over the coral reef. And then, guess what? In these oceanic island environments, the tuna will come in right over 30 feet of water. And I've caught a tuna that had a longnose butterfly fish in its stomach. Okay. So Yeah. So it's all very linked and it's all connected. There's no demarcation between terrestrial and marine. It's all one.
0: It's important to protect the whole system. It's
2: important to protect the whole system and also protect it out as far as you can. So you can protect those pelagic environments as well as the near shore.
1: So for some places uninhabited like Palmyra or these kind of remote atolls, this Makes complete sense. I'm on board. I like it. For some place where they're trying to do conservation, but people are living and maybe they used to make a living off of these resources by extracting them. I know people love to dive with these fish. Has there been any work to kind of maybe convert to ecotourism? And if that's been done, has anyone done any studies to look at the economic effects? Like, is ecotourism actually a viable uh, alternative to fishing a well-managed fishery?
2: Yes, to all of the above. The studies for ecotourism haven't been done on humphead wrasse specifically, but it's been done on the marine environment. And you could have one humphead wrasse, they're resonant fish, they're your charismatic megafauna. Ooh, super cool. Everybody wants to go see them. And yeah. there are places that have these resonant fish that advertise, come and see Wally, the the mm-hmm. humphead wrasse. <laughs> And, you know, Wally was a famous one that was in the Great Barrier Reef, actually sex changed. They had to rename him. Oh, I was just on the Cook Islands and everybody knows where the resident humphead wrasse is and they go and they snorkel with it. And it's this big draw for all of the tourists. So Mm -hmm. if you take that away by harvesting that one fish, you've lost so much money because now you can't take your tourists there every day, three times a day and charge them a boat tour. And it's just the amount of ecotourism money you get far outweighs what you would ever get in a fishery, especially for these rare fish. That's why these places are important to show people, okay, this is how it should be. This is our baseline. Let's Mm -hmm. see if we can protect other areas and help the resilient environments be restored. I'll have a picture of a school of parrotfish and people from American Samoa go, I thought they were solitary. I had no idea they schooled. So they don't have the fishing pressure and, you know, pollution and all these other things, all the anthropogenic stressors. This is what they're supposed to do. We have trains of manta rays of like 80, 90 manta rays. Everything is intact. And it's a really good example about how it should be and how it can be. And that's the one amazing thing about Palmyra. And I'm remiss in that I haven't talked about the research station at all. TNC has a research station and it has a bunch of Really great institutions that come down. UC Santa Barbara, Stanford, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, USGS, Park Service, all these entities come together and they work at the Palmyra Climate Adaptation Laboratory or Climate. It's Carl. Carl. C-A-R-L. My husband works for the Nature Conservancy. And so okay. I should really know what it stands for. But <laughs> Climate Adaptation and Resilience Laboratory at Palmyra Atoll. And it's run by the Nature Conservancy.
0: Awesome. Your husband's going to be happy. <laughs> thank you for saving my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank nice. you so much. This was super fascinating. Yeah, this has been Love great. this fish. Okay. Get out there and enjoy Appreciate all the it. fish, especially this rest.: It's super cool. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebek, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A. F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.